Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this week's episode, Roger is joined by Dr. Zach Cooper from the American Enterprise Institute and Dr. Hal Brands from the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. In addition to his position at AEI, Zach co-directs the Alliance for Securing Democracy and co-hosts the Net Assessment Podcast. He previously served as the assistant to the Deputy National Security Advisor in the Bush White House. Hal has authored or co-authored seven books, the most recent of which is The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft, World Order. Roger, Hal, and Zach discuss what drives the competition between the U.S. and China, America's position in the Middle East, and the 2022 Beijing Olympics. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Zach Cooper, Hal Brands, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, I know both of you actually from separate uh, uh, kind of walks or, or areas of, uh, of, of work that I've been involved in. Hal, you and I had a, a great time working on the National Defense Strategy Commission. Zach, you and I have been involved in more recently Foreign American Leadership and uh, other avenues of kind of right of center foreign policy making. What about the two of you? You're writing together, really interesting stuff. Are you guys uh, first time uh, kind of partners in writing, longtime friends or recent friends and uh, recent writing partners? Friends, I, that yeah, might be go, going a little first. far. <laughs> I would just say an acquaintance maybe. No, Hal, Hal and I, we so we overlapped uh, at AI for the first time, I think, but we sort of have similar backgrounds. I think we were the same year at Stanford um, uh, in undergrad and then went to slightly different paths, but both have spent time at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and, and other places and then sort of finally reconnected, I don't know how, maybe three or four years ago and, and started writing a few things together. Yeah, that, that's about right. So we, we've actually been living parallel lives for 20 years. We graduated from the same college in the same year, studying the same thing, never knew each other, then did a bunch of the same things, never knew each other, finally met a few uh, years ago. And uh, I, I eventually followed Zach over to AEI and uh, have been bugging him to write things with me ever since. That, that's awesome. Um, didn't know each other at all at Stanford then. No, never that. Not not even a little bit. That that's that's wild. Um, now, Hal, you worked in the Department of Defense, but that was during the Obama administration, right? That's right. It was in the dying days of the Obama administration. I was working for uh, Ash Carter as a special assistant, doing strategic planning stuff, which was basically whatever policy issue that he was worked up about. So it was a lot of the counter ISIS back in in those days, uh, and then some China and Russia stuff as well. And then Zach, you were in the Pentagon, but that was at the during the Bush administration, right? Yeah, in two thousand five, two thousand seven, and then uh, a year detailed from the Pentagon at the White House. 
Now you guys are in the, the national security world. Yeah, we're going to talk about your recent writing on, on China and how the US ought to look at it, what the strategy should be. The old alma mater out there in Stanford, are they like putting you up in the you know, pictures of you in the alumni magazine? Or are they like running away from these crazy defense hawks? Zach? Well, it's funny, I just was getting an invite to go back to Stanford. So I, I guess they, they're sort of tolerating uh, sort of tolerating us. I mean, and Stanford's an interesting place because you've got the Hoover crowd out there, which is obviously a bit right of center. Um, and then the faculty, which tend to be more left-leaning. So you actually do get a, a mix of perspectives out there. Hal, you're, you're, you've written all these books and stuff. I mean, they can't ignore you over in the Hoover, on the Stanford campus. It's not just the Hoover folks, huh? I, I still talk to um, a number of the professors that I studied with when I was there. And so uh, I, I, one of my history advisors was Jack Rakoff, who does early American history and is a wonderful person. And so I, I still talk to him and, and Scott Sagan, who's sort of the dean of uh, nonproliferation studies in the political science world. So I, I try to keep those uh, friendships alive. Yeah, but it's it's that's good to hear and it's in these campuses which generally have a reputation of being left of center and 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 you know if they prioritize foreign policy and uh you know defense policy i mean you, you really can't find that on campuses zach when you were when you were in college i mean was there somebody who actually you could talk to about national security in in, in hoover yeah, so, you know, I, there was a really good community there. They weren't always the most closely linked up with the policy world, but um, I was part of the Center for International, what is it, how, CSAC. CSAC, Center for International Security and Cooperation. Thank you. Yeah, the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, it's clear that Hal is the better alum. I mean, that just came across loud and clear right there. <laughs> I don't think anyone would dispute that, yeah. And... So we had this we had this group of students that were there and some faculty uh, that were advising us and they were great. Um, and, you know, our mutual friend Sheena Greitens was part of this sort of small group that I was in. And so that, there were some really fantastic people that were there, but a lot of the interests out there tended to be a bit more academic and a little less policy oriented. And that's, I think, sometimes what happens, you know, when you're out in California, it's, it's hard to stay as closely linked to what's going on in D.C. Well, uh, as you guys know, the Reagan Institute is the DC office of the Reagan Library out in California. And part of the reason why I have this great opportunity here is because to do policy, you gotta be in, in, in DC. Um, just another link between the Hoover Institution and, and, and the Reagan world. Uh, and I'm sure you both are, are pleased that uh, Dr. Rice, Condi Rice is now leading the uh, Hoover Institution with, a, with fantastic credentials and experience. Uh, she's also trustee of the Reagan Foundation. So I'm just trying to somehow get in, get, get in the middle here, insert myself in this Cooper Brands Alliance. All right, we'll leave the uh, bios here and let's get to the substance. Um, you guys wrote an article in March in uh, Foreign Affairs, the perhaps most prominent uh, journal on foreign policy called U.S.-Chinese Rivalry is a Battle Over Values. And so I didn't even have to read the article before we said, okay, we got to get Branson Cooper over here. Um, China and values, U.S. foreign policy and values. I mean, that was going out of style. I mean, if you want to talk, you know, just fire up the forever wars and endless wars crowd, whether you're talking to Republicans or Democrats, you want to get them just saying, we were right, don't make these mistakes again, enter the word values. And now 
finally where there's consensus that, you know, China's is a problem. After years of Washington, whether you're Republican or Democrat, never allowing the word China to be spoken um, in the form of kind of a defense or national security discussion, we get this consensus and Cooper and Brands come on in and want to blow it all up by throwing that word values. Why would you do that and ruin the consensus? How Brands? Well, part of the reason, and this is actually true, is we were bored because we uh, we came up with the idea for this article on a, <laughs> I, th I think it was a 21-hour round-trip car ride in the middle of COVID to, to go do an event together, and we ran out of things to talk about after hour seven, so we figured we might as well <laughs> do, do some work. And so we, we kind of brainstormed this article, uh, as well as a couple of others, actually, while, while we were doing it. But I think what, what got us going was um, a couple of things. And so the first was that- Hold on, I gotta interrupt you here because George Kennan sitting in like Moscow and writing, you know, the long telegram steeped in like, you know, strategery and, and looking and analyzing and you guys just kind of doing this trip <laughs> for 21 hours and you come yeah. up with this because you exhausted your conversation? Between stops at Wendy's, we, we <laughs> outlined this, this piece. Uh, and and th this is actually a, a true story. I mean, it took us forever to get home. And so we figured we might as well make something productive out of it. Um, but the I think where we were kind of coming from was that uh, while there does seem to be uh, something of a bipartisan consensus on the idea that the United States faces a significant challenge from China and needs to move toward a more competitive approach. It's, it's hard to get the prescription right unless you get the diagnosis right. And the, the part of the diagnosis that we wanted to flag is that the reason the United States and China have trouble getting along isn't simply because we have clashing geopolitical interests, it's because we have clashing political value systems as well. And the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, quite frankly, is, is simply incapable of feeling secure in what we often call the liberal world order because the illiberal principles of its governance at home clash fundamentally with the liberal principles on which the United States and its friends have sought to construct international affairs over the past uh, 75 years. And so if you don't understand that and you don't understand the insecurities and the ideological ambitions that are driving Chinese foreign policy, then it's really difficult to know what challenge you're trying to meet and how you should meet it. Uh, and so that was the first piece. And then just briefly, the second piece was that we also think that values are a competitive advantage for the United States, that, that they allow us to be more effective in building large coalitions uh, to, to meet the Chinese challenge, that they give us a moral asymmetry in dealing with uh, a very repressive uh, regime that's committing all sorts of horrific abuses against its own people. And so unless we tap into the ideological dimension of the competition, will be uh, leaving arrows in the quiver, so to speak. Got it. Um, moral asymmetry, Zach. I mean, are, are, we, are you guys saying we're just better than they are? Is, is, that, is that the essence? Or we just have this kind of moral superiority and, and building what Hal said, you know, so we just need to make that part of the strategy or actually it's, it's what will allow us to have an effective strategy. Am I misunderstanding moral asymmetry? No, I, I think the bottom line is, you know, sometimes the Chinese actually tell you exactly what's on their mind. And they've been telling us for years that they want us to stop using sort of the Cold War language, right? And stop talking about ideology. Why do they want to stop talking about that? Because the Communist Party doesn't have a particularly attractive ideology abroad, right? I mean, how many of us want to live under a one-party system that's highly repressive and 
you know, I don't think a lot of people want to sign up to that. Not just people, by the way, in democratic systems, but even people in autocratic systems may not want to sign up for something like that. And so I think we really put ourselves at a disadvantage if we go along with this Chinese line and say, yeah, let's let's not talk about ideological differences. Oh, that's you know, that's sort of starting a new Cold War or something like that. Let's let's ignore those ideological differences and just focus on power. That's what the Chinese want. That that's actually what plays to their strengths, right? Which is that people think they're rising, people think they're going to be powerful in the future. Well, the thing that doesn't play to their strength is the fact that they don't have a vision that's very attractive to most people around the world. And if we don't use that exactly as Hal said, we're just leaving arrows in the quiver. I want to get back to the Cold War and a vision that's attractive to the world because I guess there's you know some counterarguments we made there. But Zach, st sticking with you for a second. I mean, do we have to focus on the differences? Surely we have friends and allies who are not democratic and we figure out how to get along with so that, you know, like a coexistence. Is it truly there a different form of government ideology that, that we should harp on? I mean, look at the monarchies that we're friends with uh, across the Arab world. Why, why is it different here? Or would you say the same thing for friends and allies in the Arab world? I think what, what I would argue, and I think Hal's on board with this, is that it's it's not that we're suggesting that values have to be the only thing we talk about, right? It We are trying to push back, though, against this idea that power is all that matters and ideology or values should be left on the cutting room floor. So in my view, we've got to be able to combine both. And there are going to be some countries that would prefer us to be quiet about our values, right? So we need to work with Vietnam. Vietnam is going to have some differences with us on, on certain values issues. So are others in Asia. Um, that's absolutely the case. But part of what's hard here is some of those who suggest that we shouldn't talk so much about values and ideology, I'm not sure they really have a plan for how to get, say, the Europeans on board with our agenda on China issues. And so we're not suggesting that we have to just constantly talk about values and ideology. There's a time and a place for everything. But I think to ignore it entirely means that we're going to have a really hard time getting some of the most important players around the world on board to push back against certain types of Chinese activity. Hal, I mean, is our system and, and kind of this values approach more attractive than the, the Chinese approach? I mean, the Chinese, uh, Basically, their formula, and this is not a quote from your article, but I expect you guys would agree with it, is um, you give me your freedom, or your liberty, and I'll give you economic prosperity and security. You know, a lot of people across the world will say, you know what, I'm up for that. And it ain't, you know, what the Soviets were selling back in the Cold War. I mean, this is legit prosperity measured in, you know, dollars or whatever currency in your pocket uh, and security right? Uh, unless you're the Uyghur, right? Or unless you're the democratic advocate, you know, in Hong Kong, and you're willing to play by the rules of regime, I guess it's more secure than otherwise. So, so is this really, is what we're selling really better what they're offering? So I'll make a couple of points about this. One is that uh, I think the Chinese economic model probably isn't quite as attractive as the Chinese would have us believe. Uh, when you think about the increasing signs of just sort of economic stagnation that we're seeing coming out of China, not just today, but really going back about a dozen years. That's not to say that there haven't been massive economic gains for China over the past 43 years, uh, but 
But nonetheless, I mean, we should keep that in mind. The second point is that the Chinese model, which is basically you open up your economy to a degree while maintaining very tight control of the political system is very attractive to uh, kleptocratic governments elsewhere, to aspiring uh, autocrats, uh, basically to uh, rulers in countries where the rule of law is not well developed. It tends to be less attractive to the people that those rulers rule. And so this is one of the reasons why, uh, even though there's pervasive Chinese economic influence in uh, Africa, for instance, that Chinese presence is not always popular because it's often seen to be shoring up corrupt or repressive uh, regimes. So I, I, I don't know, uh, Hal, I'll stick with you. If you saw over the weekend or maybe it was yesterday, the day before, uh, Senator Ben Sass had a, uh, a piece in the Wall Street Journal where uh, he was trying to appeal to the inner Zach Cooper and Hal Brands at the same time trying to appeal to the inner, let's call him Bridge Colby, you know, where he's saying, this is our moment to give vaccines to the world and get the whole world to see the United States, right? Delivers and our economic system, political system delivers, you know, good health, good vaccines. You know, our, our, our system produces this as opposed to the you know, crap that the Chinese are giving you, vaccines that don't work. And there's values uh, kind of rationale for that, a moral rationale, but also kind of a, a realist rationale. Hey, just give me your take on Senator Sass's approach. He was actually making a, an argument less about values, no values, and more about don't give away IP to the, you know, to, yeah. I don't know, the World Trade Organization. Actually, keep the IP, just give them the damn vaccines. But kind of give me your take on that and and how that particular thread, that issue, would apply in this conversation. Yeah, I look, I'm I'm violently in agreement with this argument. I, I think that uh, sort of the the quest to vaccinate the world against COVID is probably the most important soft power competition of most of our lifetimes. Uh, it has the potential to be as big as something like the Marshall Plan was. I know that's an overused analogy, but I think it's actually apt here. And it's particularly important, I think, for two additional reasons. One is that if, if I had told you eight months ago that the United States has, the chance, has a really good chance to be the country that leads the world out of the pandemic, nine out of 10 people would have looked at me like I was out of my mind. I mean, when we were dealing with horrific, horrific death tolls and infection rates in the United States, and what's remarkable is how quickly the U.S. position has improved because of this second reason, which is that uh, our democratic free market system in cooperation with other democratic free market systems has produced these miracle vaccines in an incredibly short period of time. Again, if I had told you at the beginning of the pandemic that we would have vaccines that were 95% effective within eight months, that would have seemed absurd. And so there, there's a huge opportunity to do exactly what Senator Sass is saying. But here, here's the, the, the hitch. That window isn't going to remain open forever. And so the United States has shifted the narrative about COVID. And, and so now, instead of being viewed kind of as the basket case, Increasingly, there's a little bit of resentment because the United States seems to have done so well in accumulating a, a stockpile of vaccines for its own people. And so we need to start moving quickly to show that we have big ambitions and big plans for distributing this globally. I think the Quad Vaccine Initiative was, was a really good down payment on this, but it's probably only a down payment. So this is a key move to bring in allies and friends. But Zach, how does this actually... Kind of translate, or how do you make it count? 
points on the board in this competition with China? Um, is it simply let's get those vaccines to India, let's help our friends in the north, let's help you know get it out there? A billion vaccines, like Senator Sass wrote, uh, or is there some other kind of element to this recipe to making it count in this competition with China? The thing I really liked about Senator Sass's op-ed was, you know, it talks about blending idealism and realism, and I think that's really what we're what we're proposing here, right? Is um, there are certain times where you have to appeal to ideas, and there are certain times when you have to fall back on realism, um, and then there are times when you get to do both. And I think the value of the vaccine effort is this is one where we get to do both, right? We get to say, here, we're providing real value. And I think the quad vaccine effort um, then takes a little bit more competitive approach, right? It, it was looking at the countries that we think matter most in the region. And so that's not just the quad countries themselves, but also the Southeast Asians and trying to promise that the quad would deliver for Southeast Asia. Translate um, quad, by the way, Cal talked about quad, that's you right. talked about quad, we're talking about India, we're talking, go ahead. That's right, so the quad is the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. And this grouping formed about 15 years ago initially, then sort of fell apart, and then it's come back over the last five years or so. And increasingly, those four countries are taking on more of a leadership role in Asia. But the challenge is that a lot of the countries we're actually struggling over, uh, the ones that we want to align more closely with us, are in Southeast Asia. And the question has been, how do you work with India and Japan and Australia to convince the Southeast Asians to work more closely with us? And the Quad has put together this idea that actually we're going to help provide financing in India for vaccine production and then export those vaccines to Southeast Asia. And obviously there's some political challenges in India with doing this right now, given the crisis there. Um, but if we can do that, it's the perfect idea because it helps us work with these very big and powerful countries to help some smaller countries that are struggling to get vaccine access. How, and I think okay. that combines exactly what, what we need in the in this current approach. Is the enemy here really multilateralism and the and the values component and the realism component really uh, you know ought to, ought to kind of just integrate as much as possible? But it's what we don't want to do is just hand this all off to multilateral, multinational institutions and 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 kind of take our our hands off the steering wheel. I think there's a little bit of a balancing act here. So, so on the one hand, um, you know, one of the challenges that COVID has highlighted is that certain international institutions like the WHO have, have underperformed in part because they've been excessively deferential to Chinese sensitivities. And so there are, so there are some warning signs there with respect to what you can expect truly global institutions. That was said so diplomatically, Hal. I mean, the translation is, well, you know, uh, a, a less diplomatic person would say WHO was kind of owned by the Chinese, dominated by Chinese interests. And as a result, you know, the world lost out and a credible multinational institution didn't deliver for everybody else. I, I mean, I think it's a little bit more complicated, not a lot more complicated, but a little, <laughs> bit, little more complicated in the sense that there were uh, lots of folks within the WHO who I think knew what was going on or had a sense that the Chinese were not being forthcoming back in December and January during those critical early months. And the, the task that the WHO leadership had, I think was kind of the same task that President Trump thought that he had, which was how do you best incentivize good Chinese cooperation on these issues? And I think 
both Washington and Geneva gambled wrongly that you would do so by not seeming to ostracize the Chinese or point out their, their failings. That, that I think was a miscalculation, but nonetheless, I understand how people got there. But the other part of the balancing act, by the way, is that there does have to be a multilateral dimension to this because the last thing that the United States wants to do is play into the Chinese narrative that the US-China competition is just like a slugfest between great powers who are struggling over the spoils of the international system. That's not our argument, right? Our argument should be that there is an international system out there that benefits all sorts of countries beside the United States. The Chinese are laying into that system. They're weakening it in a variety of ways. And so we should be rounding up multilateral coalitions of countries to push back in areas where we think the Chinese behavior is damaging. Yeah, that's, that's the sort of matchup. No, that's a great point. I mean, you emphasize in the article, uh, you and Zach, that it's more than a quest, I think quoting here, to defend US primacy. There's actually interests here that are shared. And that's a key route perhaps to bring in friends and allies, be it in Europe or, or in Asia. But, but there is this other argument that if you focus on values, uh, you somehow will diminish the importance to focus on security and economic interests. And, you know, Rich Colby and others have, have, have kind of made this point that, listen, we know how this goes historically. You get big countries, their interests are global, they're going to confront each other, and they're ultimately determined by security and the economy, not values. Zach, you obviously, you know, disagree with that. What's the best argument against that? I think the best argument is that actually what we are trying to do on the security side is directly related to values. So in, in my view and Hal and I have written about this, there are a bunch of different competitions that are ongoing. We've got security, economic, technological, we've got a governance competition. All of those are underwritten by values. Values aren't just human rights and democracy. Values are, you know, what are the rules of the road on maritime? law, right? What are the rules of the road on economic trade, on intellectual property theft? So those are values too. And when we think of values only as being about human rights issues, that actually undersells the global nature of the values that we've been building with our friends for years. And so I think if you start taking those values out of what we're trying to do on the security side, what you get is a very small number of countries that actually care to have the U.S. be, you know, dominant in the Asia Pacific region. You might get Japan, you might get Taiwan, you might get India, Vietnam, um, maybe the Philippines. And look, if you look at the last four years, those are the handful of countries where actually polling data was pretty good on the Trump administration. The other 200 countries they don't really care that much about whether the US is the dominant military power in Asia. You gotta find something else that appeals to them other than just this pure military balance. And I think that's where the values component has to come in. So they've gotta go hand in hand. So yeah, can I, I, mean, can I pick up on this? Go ahead, Hal. Uh, yeah, cause I mean, I think this is important. And I think I, you know, to give credit to Bridge and some of the arguments he's making, I think it would be dangerous if the United States turns the dial on ideological competition up to 13 while turning the dial on military competition down to seven, right? That, that's a recipe for disaster. But uh, what, you know, what is it when we are trying to say, get the Europeans on side, as Zach mentioned earlier, that really binds us to Europe in the US-China context? I mean, the Europeans don't really fear Chinese 
military power. Maybe, maybe the Brits and the French might have a role to play in a Taiwan scenario or a South China Sea scenario. But for most, most countries, it's on the other side of the world and it's a military afterthought. They don't perceive it in the same way we do. What really binds us to the Europeans is that we have uh, compatible, which is not to say identical, outlooks on how the world should work that are rooted in common political values. And by the way, this goes back to the Cold War. We often think of the Cold War as sort of the apotheosis of realist American foreign policy balancing against the Soviet Union. Go back and read the North Atlantic Treaty. It's explicitly written into the North Atlantic Treaty that this was a union of values. It was a union on behalf of a particular conception of how societies and international society should work. That didn't mean that NATO couldn't work with or even include authoritarian states from time to time, but it meant that the hard core of the alliance was made up of countries that shared values as well as interests. So you mentioned the Cold War of values, but it was, of course, de-emphasized at times during the Cold War and emphasized more. I mean, you know, coming to you from the Reagan Institute, it was clearly something that President Reagan wanted to emphasize and detente for one reason or another. Uh, either they thought it was the most pragmatic thing to do given their assessment of Soviet power, US power, or because it's just downright what they believe, took the approach of saying, we're, we're just, we're, we're gonna just live and let live. Uh, there's a little bit of that going on in this discussion. I wanna kind of tease it out. Doesn't this ultimately come down to end goals, which is another brand Cooper collaboration, right? I guess we're an hour 20 of your, of your road trip where you're like, okay, you saw the values thing. Now let's think about how we're going to end this whole competition. Take us through how someone or people who, who think about the importance of values. It gives us the comparative advantage with our allies and friends. You've outlined that here. How does that inform the end state we should seek? Are we, are we trying to get back to uh, a Kissingerian? You know, we're just going to live and let live and, you know, come to agreement with the rules of the road across the globe. Or is it going to be a Reagan-esque, we win, they lose? Or are you going to fight me on the Cold War analogy and come up with something else? Zach Cooper. So this is such a hard question. And I, it is the thing that I think the U.S. policy community on China has done the least well with over the last few years. So it, it is kind of shocking. We talk a lot about great power competition, but we actually don't know really what the purpose of that competition is, just as you were saying, right? Um, and we, we often say that the old model has failed. And this was the model that Bob Zelik described when he said that we hoped that China would become a responsible stakeholder. So we've all, or many of us have agreed that that doesn't seem like it's happening. So Although many Bob people- Bob Zelik would still stand by it. And recent pieces I've, uh, recent pieces you wrote seem to say it was unrealistic to think otherwise. So maybe comment on that too. I see a smirk from Hal, so you might want to jump in there, but you first, Zach. Yeah, so, so that's right. So there, there is a group that still thinks that we can incentivize China to become a responsible stakeholder. I think that group is shrinking. The hard part then is if you say, okay, we don't think we can shape Chinese choices in the path that we want in this regard, what is the fallback option? And that's a really tough discussion and, and it's an awkward one to have. And so we just have avoided having it. Um, I think one option is that you just hope that we're going to sort of indefinitely coexist and it's going to be, you know, very tense and difficult um, and we are going to try and avoid a conflict. The other model is one where you sort of actively hope that the Chinese system at some point changes in a fundamental way. I am coming slowly. Did that regime change, Zach Cooper? Did you just, in a very polite fashion, say you think there'll be regime change is the, is the outcome we should seek? 
So I'm not suggesting regime change. I'm suggesting that we have to wait for potentially regime failure. And I think that's different, right? Because it's the difference between pushing for something to happen and waiting for it to happen. And so it's strategically different, but this is why it's hard to talk about, right? Because the second you bring this up, it does trigger regime change discussions. And that's very difficult, especially in the last 20 years to talk about. Um, however, the proponents of the responsible stakeholder theory, most of them don't have a clear theory of victory of, of what they actually want to happen. And that's one thing that I think we're all struggling with right now. Hal, what's your gloss on this? Yeah, so I, I think what Zach just said is exactly right. And it actually indicates why this issue is essentially too hot to handle for the US government and most of the US foreign policy community right now. Because if you look at it analytically, and if you buy our assessment of what drives the US-China competition, not everybody buys it, of course, but if, if you buy it, it sort of takes you down this path of thinking, okay, there's going to have to be some sort of change in the nature of the Chinese regime to get a stable, healthy relationship between China and the United States and the outside world. Now, that doesn't necessarily imply an active regime change agenda. And in fact, in the piece we wrote on this, we say we don't think that would be a good idea for, for a variety of, of reasons. But it is, it is where kind of the logic takes you. The, the challenge is that this is not just um, difficult in DC, it's kind of toxic diplomatically right now. And so we, we're having enough trouble lining up countries on side on economic issues, on technological issues, on military issues, on diplomatic issues, without bringing this uh, very tense issue into the discussion. And so this is one where uh, I think that the, the debate isn't as sharp as it should be. Zach's right on that there are actually good diplomatic reasons at the moment why it hasn't become clear. Well, I get it, right? I mean, you don't want to freak out somebody. Join us in this campaign to have World War III with China. What do you mean? You know, why isn't that appealing? I, mean, I, I get why that's a, a problem with friends, partners, and allies. On the other hand, I mean, I'm talking to two of the uh, most kind of accomplished young strategists in the world of national security. I'm pretty sure 101 in, in designing strategy is you need to know your end state, and then you build the strategy to get there. Kind of weird to invest all of this time on strategy, political, economic, military, otherwise, without articulating or outlining where we're trying to go. So doesn't this make for a really poor strategy, Hal? Yes. And, and in fact, you're, it's funny, we're arguing against our piece and you're arguing for it. Uh, but this is what I think what Zach and I are articulating right now is uh, these are the responses we got when we made the argument that you might have to wait for regime failure. And so there, there are certain sensitivities here. But yes, ultimately, when you're making decisions about what level of investment you want to make in a competition, what level of risk you're willing to run, uh, how long you think those investments will need to endure, they have to be tethered to some understanding, some projection of how you think the competition will ultimately end. And so that was our purpose in, in writing the piece to try to provoke this debate about where we're ultimately going because obviously that influences the path you take to get there. Well, but Zach, you can't paper over this. I mean, let's go back to the other argument, not suggesting you're papering over it, but it, it you know, you're, you're, you're kind of expressing the difficulty in saying where we wanna land. I mean, there is an alternative course, right? At somewhat between a bridge Colby, you know, and, and, and a Bob Zellick, which is 
I just want things to stay the way they are today. So don't touch Taiwan. I, I really want you to stop screwing with Hong Kong, right? Um, you know, I'm gonna occasionally, you know, raise eyebrows over what's going on with the Uyghurs, but that's within your sovereign territory. Uh, I'm gonna let you do the Olympics and not interfere, but all the while, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make sure America's got the biggest, baddest military with the you know, best and most promising economy. Now, if I get those two things right, economic and military supremacy, you know, that's what I have to do just to keep China in its box. To me, that's a little myopic, right? I mean, you're suffering from this kind of, it's never gonna get better than it is right now. Uh, but isn't that a, a, a reasonable uh, articulation of a, of, a, of a strategy and perhaps probably more reflective of where most policymakers are, Zach? I do think that's pretty reflective of where most policymakers are, right? Is let's just hold on to the status quo. The problem, of course, is that we've been saying that for 20 years while the military balance got worse and worse and worse. And so I think it's harder and harder for us to insist that, oh, we can just you know, maintain the status quo. Well, you know, you look at Taiwan, for example, and it, it doesn't seem like that's going to potentially last forever. And so this is, I think, where we then have to have a discussion about which parts of the status quo we think we can maintain, which parts we're going to have to change. That is a tricky discussion, right? And if you look at the history of established powers dealing with rising powers, they tend not to do particularly well on trying to think about which areas they're going to have to sacrifice as the rising power grows stronger. And so I think often what they do is they just hold on to everything. Um, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that, right? Is if the US is going to accept that there are some changes in relative power that have happened in the last 20 years, right? And you've talked about this, you know, the Chinese now have the world's largest Navy. That's a, that's a pretty big change. Um, we have to accept that we just can't keep saying, oh, we just want things to be like they are now or five years ago or 10 years ago. That's not what's gonna happen most likely, right? They're gonna be different five or 10 years from now. And I think the danger is, if we can't articulate how we want the world to be different five or 10 years from now, then the Chinese look like they have a pretty compelling argument, right? That they have a vision and we don't. Um, and that's where I think we, we have to, at some point, wake up and have this discussion about what our objectives are. It may be politically difficult, both here at home and abroad, but I don't think we can avoid it forever. Well, Hal, I'm gonna twist Zach's words because he didn't say what I'm about to say, but it could be an, it could be one reasonable approach based on what he said. You're right. Let, let's 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 not accept the status quo. We gotta do things differently. Um, instead of you know following the uh, well uh, kind of written words of the National Defense Strategy Commission and increase the size of our military and double down in terms of what we're doing and new technologies and continue not just being present but smarter in what we do in the Middle East. How about we take an approach that says, we're gonna go all in and, and focus on Asia. We're gonna truly become that Asia power and we're gonna de-emphasize um, the US leadership, economic, militarily, uh, even political in places like the Middle East and, and even Europe, because we gotta to adjust to the reality as Zach has just, just described, but you know, the, the, the British empires of history died because they just held on to everything they're doing and you can't do it all. Hal, do you, do you what's, what's your take on that? It's beyond the scope of the pieces you wrote, but I know you've thought about this a little bit. 
So I, I'm a bit of two minds on this. And so on, on the one hand, clearly there has to be greater relative focus in American statecraft on dealing with the challenge that China poses. And, and clearly when we're thinking about uh, areas where China could try to change the status quo in ways that would be really, really damaging to American interests in the short term, you think about places like the Taiwan Strait. And, and, and solving that problem, or at least mitigating that military problem is gonna take a lot of resources, it's gonna take a lot of focus, it's, it's gonna take a lot of ingenuity. At the same time, the, the hard fact of the matter is that the United States is a global power and we have global interests. We, we even have interests in the Middle East. And so uh, while we can try to de-emphasize our investments in a place like the Middle East, the danger is always that if we pull back too much, something bad will happen that will remind us that we have vital interests at stake uh, in these regions, and then the distraction from the main event will become even greater. In fact, we, we've lived this over the past decade. This was what happened with the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, and then ISIS blows up in Iraq and Syria, and we fight another multi-year war in the Middle East just at the time that we're trying to operationalize the Asia pivot. And, and so there, there is another balancing act here. You need to get down to a lower level of engagement in the Middle East than we had a decade ago but you've gotta be able to suppress the threats you're worried about and defend the interests that you value, or otherwise you're constantly going to be yo-yoed because bad things will happen and you'll get pulled back in. Yeah, uh, uh, great set of points. And, and of course, I mean, the reality is, is that we are dramatically uh, kind of in a dramatically different place in the Middle East uh, than we were a decade ago, measured in dollars committed or, or, or troops on the ground. Yet the mindset seems to be we're still there, uh, and it's probably less to do with our forces on the ground than the spoilers just being active, whether it's Hamas in Gaza or uh, uh, you know IRGC Iranian you know uh, speedboats uh, harassing U.S. vessels in the uh, in the Persian Gulf. But let, let's move away from that uh, bit of commentary and focus. One thing, uh, Zach, you said earlier in our conversation is values is more than human rights, uh, which, which I get, you know, there's kind of the economic, you know, system that the US and allies built instead of it, it promotes, you know, a free market system. Those are values too. But human rights were pretty pivotal uh, during the Cold War. And I'm, I'm mindful of the time we had um, our, um, uh, Sharansky uh, on this, uh, show and he's talking about how focused a president reagan was and carter too but president reagan in a different quite in his view uh a more substantial way uh and how much of an impact it had on uh the soviets and, and then specifically gorbachev uh, give me a feel for where the human rights component ought to be in this competition and i referenced uh the winter olympics i mean to me you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but as you guys know about anybody else, it rhymes. And we have a very important moment here where uh, China is going to host the Winter Olympics. Our greatest companies uh, are going to go ahead and, and, and pay a lot of money to sponsor. And it's going to be this awesome opportunity to advance the Chinese Communist Party propaganda machine. Why isn't there some dissident we're getting behind? You know, where, where, where does this kind of play out in the current competition? Zach, do all that in about, you know, 60 seconds. This is so important, right? And if you look at polling data globally and in the United States, 
you'll see that actually what I think has driven a lot of concern about Chinese behavior is the actions of the Communist Party on human rights and democracy issues. It's Hong Kong, it's Xinjiang, right? If you look at polling data in Europe- um, Xinjiang's being the, the, the Uyghur camps. Yes, exactly, right? Roughly a million people, uh, higher than a million uh, over the last couple of years that have been detained and, and, and worse. Um, and so I think these human rights issues are incredibly important to building the coalitions that we need to push back against China, not just on human rights issues, but on other issues as well. So we can't just forget about these issues. Um, and I, I'll say something which Hal may disagree with on the oh, Olympics. exciting. Good. Go for it. Let's go. I want some disagreement between you guys. So I think there are a set of options on the Olympics, right? The, the maximal option is you pull out entirely. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I, I think what's more likely is that you have a diplomatic boycott. So you don't have uh, US officials go. Um, and then you put real pressure on companies to not advertise at the Olympics and on the broadcasters, if they're going to broadcast propaganda from the Chinese Communist Party to also broadcast a bit of reality about what's happening in China today. Now. I realize that that for some people doesn't go far enough, but I, I think that would get the job done in terms of highlighting the challenges on the human rights and democracy issue without overly penalizing the athletes who only have a chance to go to the Olympics every four years um, and, and you know are in some cases gonna lose out on that opportunity. So if I were trying to put together a strategy for the administration about what to do on the Olympics, that's that's what my approach is. What about, what about a campaign to go elsewhere, uh, Hal? Like, you know, that, that seems to be in the landscape that Zach just outlined, wouldn't it be awesome for our values and for athletes to have a Winter Olympics, but that's not in China? So this is the argument that our colleague, Mike Maza, who's been doing just fantastic work on this issue, has, has made, that we should have basically a freedom games. That uh, the AEI talent has no limits. It's amazing. Right. Well, I don't think we'd be competing at the freedom games. We have no athletic <laughs> talent. But uh, I think the, the idea is, is appealing because it avoids the, the, the problem of penalizing athletes. I think it also uh, provides a lever for dealing with the broader problem, which is that the Olympics have increasingly become a showcase for dictators over the past few few decades. The, the, it would be a big lift, right? It would be a big multilateral diplomatic lift. You're starting to see uh, some people come around on this. Nancy Pelosi, I think it was just yesterday, argued that the United States should boycott the, the Beijing games. And so I think the calculus that the Biden administration will have to run is can we get enough significant countries on board that this doesn't become embarrassing? And can we do this by, uh, while we're trying to pull 17 other levers in foreign policy at the same time? And so it may just come down to a question of, of how much does the administration want to invest in this as opposed to other politically difficult things vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China. But, but I think that would be the best possible solution if you can get there. But Zach, isn't that isn't this a really important target? Like in, in the in the realm of great power competition, where we have real grave concerns about China and its respect for human rights, respect for values, um, you know, the economic legitimacy it would bestow upon them, the political legitimacy um, that we ought to 
be prioritizing this particular policy decision, perhaps above others. I mean, what if I'm talking to the, you know, to Jake Sullivan over in the Biden White House, you know, what would, what argument would you make that there is something more important than how the United States engages the Beijing Olympics uh, in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship? Well, I think one thing that reinforces what you're saying is that 2022 is a pretty important year in China. It is the beginning of what would usually be the transition from Xi Jinping to someone else. It won't be a transition. He is going to most likely continue in power. And if Autocrats anything- rule forever. That's right. And, and he's going to consolidate his position in 2022 and 23. And so this is a pretty important year for Xi where he wants everything to go right this year, right? And right off the bat in February, you're likely to have an Olympics, which is going to be a bit of a mess. And, and let's be clear, even if the U.S. goes, but there are no diplomats and you know broadcasters aren't uh, getting advertisements and they're broadcasting the reality of what's going on in China, that's not going to make things look particularly good for, for the Communist Party. So I think there are ways to put pressure on without pulling the athletes, but I, I think Hal's exactly right. If we were convinced that you were going to get 60, 70, 80 other countries to pull athletes, then I'd say, yeah, go for it. My guess, having talked to some others about this, is that we're talking about a handful. And I think what you don't want to do is end up playing a weak hand where the U.S. pulls out of the Olympics, it gets three, four or five other countries to follow along and everyone else goes. Right. That's that's actually a mess. Yeah, and then that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely a bad outcome. Yeah, then you strengthen she's hand. So if you can get other countries to pull their athletes, fine. But I think um, doing that requires a lot of international support. Hal, you're, you're a historian. Uh, this is not something new for the United States. Uh, in 80, of course, we chose not uh, to participate in the Olympic Games because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. In 1936, the United States did participate in the Olympic Games in Berlin when it was Nazi Germany. Um, I think Nazi Germany, the Olympics, that was a huge propaganda platform for Hitler. Um, everybody, you know, warns, don't make analogies, don't talk about, you know, Hitler and, 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 and Nazis when you're done with China, fine. But it's relevant here in terms of the history of how the United States does or does not engage in Olympics with, with respect to, uh, you know, geopolitics and diplomacy. So this Any, is anything to distill from those examples? This is exactly why I think there's actually a pretty strong case for not going. And so we, we look back on 1980, and I think we see that that was the right decision not to go to the Moscow Games, not just because it helped contribute gradually to the diplomatic delegitimization of the Soviet Union, but because morally it was the right decision. And the reason that we look back on 1936 as such a blunder, frankly, even though it produced inspiring moments like Jesse Owens' gold medals and so on and so forth, was that it was, it was morally wrong to go. It was morally wrong to participate in this Nazi propaganda spectacle and history doesn't look kindly on that. And so one of, there are a lot of complicated diplomatic questions we should be asking ourselves about how to handle 2022, but we should also be asking ourselves the question, how is this going to look 20 or 30 years down the road or 80 years down the road? Is it a decision that we'll be proud of going to the, the Chinese Winter Olympics or not? And I think that should weigh on our calculations as well. Great conversation. Time for a lightning round. This is where we ask our guests to share with us their favorite book about Reagan, favorite 
speech by President Reagan and favorite Reagan quote. We got two of you, so that means we're getting six at the most, hopefully not less. Zach, give us your favorite Reagan book and then we'll go to hell. You know, a book I really like is um, Reagan and Gorbachev about how the Cold War ended, uh, which is by Ambassador Jack Matlock. And he walks through, he, he was around uh, for these discussions and spent a lot of time with Reagan. Um, and, and I've always found the debates uh, within the Reagan team about where Gorbachev was and was heading to be particularly fascinating. This is one where Reagan got it right and a lot of his advisors got it wrong. Uh, so that's a, it's a really fascinating book. A principal love when that, loves when that happens. Hal, what's your favorite book? Feel free to make it your own book. Academics have to give obscure answers. I just assume that making the unipolar moment is everybody's favorite book. So it would be superfluous <laughs> for me to mention that. But over on my bookshelf over here, uh, there's a book called Build Up by a guy named uh, Daniel Worlds, which is about basically the politics and the strategy of the Reagan uh, defense buildup during the 1980s, which is, which is quite good in unpacking a lot of the challenges associated with expanding the American military very quickly, both the political challenges, the bureaucratic challenges, and so on and so forth. And so I, I recommend that one. Oh man, that, that goes directly to my heart. Reagan build up, peace through strength, how it happened. All right, I gotta look into that one. I wasn't even aware of Daniel Wolf's book. I might need to steal it off your shelf. Hal, over to you for your favorite Reagan speech. Well, since we're talking about values, I guess it has to be Westminster, right? I mean, this is, this is the, I think the best distillation of Reagan's view about the intersection of values and geopolitics. And it's one of those speeches that frankly still gives you goosebumps when you read it uh, 40 years after the fact. Great one, Zach, what do you got? He stole my idea. And part of the reason is because I know the Reagan Institute's doing some great work on, on Westminster now. Yes, the great uh, Rachel Hoff is leading a project on it, which I have to wrap both of you in, Al, uh, Zach. So. Uh, all right. Do you have another one? Or are you just going to, it's a two endorsements of Westminster. It's a double endorsement. All right. Well then, uh, before Hal steals your quote, you go next. What's your favorite Reagan quote, Zach? You know, there's an obscure quote that a lot of people don't know, which uh, is, I think he said, if the Soviet Union let another political party come into existence, there would still, it would still only be a one party state because everybody would join the other party, which is always <laughs> sort of, uh, I, I've loved that, uh, and and I think it has a little little applicability to to today. So. Right, great use of humor and truth wrapped up in one quip. Awesome, uh, Hal. What you finish up the lightning round with your favorite Reagan quote? I, I would say the story about the pony and the pile, except I'm sure that's a, a familiar one. The the one that comes to mind just because we we're talking about detente is his quip in the 1970s that uh, detente is what a farmer has with his turkey until Thanksgiving. <laughs> Hal Brand, Zach Cooper, so much fun to have you on the show. We look forward to having you back in the not too distant future. Thanks for having Thanks me. So much.